Chapter Three of Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Don O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed by Edna Ferber. Chapter Three Good as New. So spring danced away and summer sauntered in. My pillows looked less and less tempting. The wine of the northern air imparted a cocky assurance. One blue and gold day followed the other, and I spent hours together out of doors in the sunshine, lying full length on the warm sweet ground to the horror of the entire neighborhood. To be sure, I was sufficiently discreet to choose the lawn at the rear of the house. There I drank in the atmosphere, as per doctor's instructions, while the genial sun warmed the watery blood in my veins and burned the skin off the end of my nose. All my life I had envied the loungers in the parks, those silent inert figures that lie under the trees all the long summer day, their shabby hats over their faces, their hands clasped above their heads, legs sprawled in uncouth comfort, while the sun dapples down between the leaves and, like a good fairy godmother, touches their frayed and wrinkled garments with flickering figures of golden splendor while they sleep. They always seem so blissfully carefree and at ease, those sprawling men figures, and I, to whom such simple joys were forbidden, being a woman, had envied them. Now I was reveling in that very joy, stretched prone upon the ground, blinking sleepily up at the sun and the cobalt sky, feeling my very hair grow and health returning in warm electric waves. I even dared to cross one leg over the other and to swing the pendant member with nonchalant air, first taking a cautious survey of the neighboring back windows to see if anyone peeked. Doubtless they did, behind those ruffled curtains, but I grew splendidly indifferent. Even the crawling things, and there were myriads of them, added to the enjoyment of my ease. With my ear so close to the ground, the grass seemed fairly to buzz with them. Everywhere there were crazily busy ants, and I, patently a sluggard and therefore one of those for whom the ancient warning was intended, considered them lazily. How they plunged about, weaving in and out, rushing here and there, helter-skelter, like bargain-hunting women darting wildly from counter to counter. "'Oh, foolish, foolish aunties!' I chided them. "'Stop wearing yourselves out this way. Don't you know that the game isn't worth the candle, and that you'll give yourselves nervous jim-jams, and then you'll have to go home to be patched up?' Look at me, I'm a horrible example. But they only bustled on, heedless of my advice, and showed their contempt by crawling over me as I lay there like a lady gulliver. Oh, I played what they call a heavy thinking part. It was not only the ants that came in for lectures. I preached sternly to myself. Well, Don, old girl, you've made a beautiful mess of it, a smashed-up wreck at twenty-eight. And what have you to show for it? Nothing. You're a useless pulp, like a lemon that has been squeezed dry. Von Gerhard was right. There must be no more newspaper work for you, me girl. Not if you can keep away from the fascination of it, which I don't think you can. Then I would fall to thinking of those years of newspapering, of the thrills of them and the ills of them. It had been exhilarating and educating, but scarcely remunerative. Mother had never approved. Dad had chuckled and said that it was a curse descended upon me from the terrible old Kitty O'Hara, the only old maiden in the history of the O'Haras, and famed in her day for a caustic tongue and a venomed pen. Dad and mother, what a pair of children they had been! The very dissimilarity of their natures had been a bond between them. Dad, light-hearted, whimsical, carefree, improvident. 
mother, gravely sweet, anxious-browed, trying to teach economy to the handsome Irish husband who, descendant of a long and royal line of spendthrift ancestors, would have none of it. It was Dad who had insisted that they name me Don, Don O'Hara. His sense of humor must have been sleeping. You were such a rosy, pinky, soft baby thing, Mother had once told me, that you looked just like the first flush of light at sunrise. That is why your father insisted on calling you Don. Poor Dad! How could he know that at twenty-eight I would be a yellow wreck of a newspaper reporter, with a wrinkle between my eyes? If he could see me now, he would say, "'Sure, you look like the Don yet, me girl, but a Pittsburgh Don.' At that, Mother, if she were here, would pat my cheek where the hollow place is and murmur, "'Never mind, Donnie dearie. Mother thinks you are beautiful just the same.' Of such blessed stuff are mothers made." At this stage of the memory game I would bury my face in the warm grass and thank my God for having taken mother before Peter Orme came into my life, and then I would fall asleep there on the soft sweet grass with my head snuggled in my arms and the ants wriggling unchided into my ears. On the last of these sylvan occasions I awoke, not with a graceful start like the storybook ladies, but with a grunt. Sis was digging me in the ribs with her toe. I looked up to see her standing over me, a foaming tumbler of something in her hand. I felt that it was eggy and eyed it disgustedly. "'Get up,' said she, "'you lazy scribbler, and drink this.' I sat up, eyeing her severely and picking grass and ants out of my hair. "'Do you mean to tell me that you woke me out of that babe-like slumber to make me drink that goo? What is it, anyway? I'll bet it's another eggnog.' "'Eggnog it is, and swallow it right away, because there are guests to see you.' I emerged from the first dip into the yellow mixture and fixed on her as stern and terrible a look as any one can whose mouth is encircled by a mustache of yellow foam. "'Guess!' I roared. "'Not for me. Don't you dare to say that they came to see me.' "'Did, too,' insists Nora with firmness. "'They came especially to see you. Asked for you, right from the jump.' I finished the eggnog in four gulps, returned the empty tumbler with an air of decision, and sank upon the grass." Tell him I rave. Tell him that I'm unconscious and that for weeks I have recognized no one, not even my dear sister. Say that in my present nerve-shattered condition I... That wouldn't satisfy them, Nora calmly interrupts. They know you're crazy because they saw you out here from their second-story back windows. That's why they came. So you may as well get up and face them. I promised them I'd bring you in. You can't go on forever refusing to see people, and you know the Waylands are... Waylands, I gasped. How many of them? Not, not the entire fiendish three. All three, I left them champing with impatience. The Waylands live just around the corner. The Waylands are omniscient. They have a system of news-gathering which would make the efforts of a New York daily appear antiquated. They know that Jenny Laffin feeds the family on soup, meat, and oatmeal when Mr. Laffin is on the road. They know that Mrs. Pearson only shakes out her rugs once in four weeks. They can tell you the number of times a week that Sam Dempster comes home drunk. They know that the Merkles never have cream with their coffee because little Lizzie Merkle goes to the creamery every day with just one pail and three cents. They gloat over the knowledge that Professor Grimes, who is a married man, is sweet on Gertie Ash, who teaches second reader in his school. They can tell you where Mrs. Black got her seal coat and her husband only earning two thousand a year. They know who is going to run for mayor and how long poor Angela Sims has to live and what Guy Donnelly said to men when he asked her to marry him. The three Waylands, mother and daughters, hunt in a group. 
They send meaning glances to one another across the room, and at parties they get together and exchange bulletins in a corner. On passing the Whalen house one is uncomfortably aware of shadowy forms lurking in the windows, and of parlor curtains that are agitated for no apparent cause. Therefore it was with a groan that I rose and prepared to follow Nora into the house. Something in my eye caused her to turn at the very door. "'Don't you dare!' she hissed. Then, banishing the warning scowl from her face and assuming a near smile, she entered the room and I followed miserably at her heels. The Waylands rose and came forward effusively. Mrs. Whalen, plump, dark, voluble. Sally, lean, swarthy, vindictive. Flossie, pudgy, powdered, overdressed. They eyed me hungrily. I felt that they were searching my features for signs of incipient insanity. Dear, dear girl! bubbled the billowy Flossie, kissing the end of my nose and fastening her eye on my ringless left hand. Sally contented herself with a limp and fishy handshake. She and I were sworn enemies in our schoolgirl days, and a baleful gleam still lurked in Sally's eye. Mrs. Whalen bestowed on me a motherly hug that enveloped me in an atmosphere of liquid face-wash, strong perfumery, and fried lard. Mrs. Whalen is a famous cook. Said she, "'We've been thinking of calling ever since you were brought home, but, dear me, you've been looking so poorly. I just said to the girls, wait till the poor thing feels more like seeing her old friends. Tell me, how are you feeling now?' The three sat forward in their chairs in attitudes of tense waiting. I resolved that if e'er I must, it should be on the side of safety. I turned to Sister Nora. "'How am I feeling anyway, Nora?' I guardedly inquired. Nora's face was a study. "'Why, Don, dear,' she said, sugar-sweet, "'no doubt you know better than I, "'but I'm sure that you're wonderfully improved, "'almost your old self, in fact. "'Don't you think she looks splendid, Mrs. Whalen?' "'The three Whalens tore their gaze "'from my blank countenance "'to exchange a series of meaning looks. "'I suppose,' purred Mrs. Whalen, "'that your awful trouble "'was the real cause of your, uh, uh, sickness, "'worrying about it and grieving as you must have.' She pronounces it with a capital T, and I know she means Peter. I hate her for it. Trouble, I chirped. Trouble never troubles me. I just worked too hard, that's all, and acquired an awful tired. All work and no play makes Jill a nervous wreck, you know. At that, the elephantine Flossie wagged a playful finger at me. Oh, now, you can't make us believe that just because we're from the country. We know all about you gay New Yorkers, with your bohemian ways, and your midnight studio suppers, and your cigarettes and cocktails and hijinks. Memory painted a swift mental picture of Don O'Hara as she used to tumble into bed after a whirlwind day at the office, too dog-tired to give her hair even one half of the prescribed one hundred strokes of the brush. But in turn I shook a reproving forefinger at Flossie. "'You've been reading some naughty society novel.' One of those millionaire divorce actress automobile novels. Dear, dear, shall I ever forget the first New York actress I ever met, or what she said? I felt more than saw a warning movement from Sis. But the three Waylands had hitched forward in their chairs. What did she say? gurgled Flossie. Was it something real reasic? Well, it was at a late supper, a studio supper given in her honor, I confessed. Yes, hissed the Waylands. And this actress, she was one of those musical comedy actresses, you know, I remember her part called for a good deal of kicking about in a short Dutch costume, came in rather late after the performance. She was wearing a regal-looking fur-edged evening wrap, and she still wore all her makeup. 
Out of the corner of my eye I saw Sis sink back with an air of resignation. And she threw open the door and said, Yes, hissed the Waylands again, wetting their lips. Said, Folks, I just had a wire from Mother up in Maine. The boy has the croup. I'm scared green. I hate to spoil the party, but don't ask me to stay. I want to go home to the flat and blubber. I didn't even stop to take my makeup off. My God, if anything should happen to the boy. Well, have a good time without me. Jim's waiting outside. A silence. Then, who was Jim? asked Flossie, hopefully. Jim was her husband, of course. He was in the same company. Another silence. Is that all? demanded Sally from the corner in which she had been glowering. All? You unnatural girl. Isn't one husband enough? Mrs. Whalen smiled an uncertain, wavering smile. There passed among the three a series of Kabbalistic signs. They rose simultaneously. How quaint you are, exclaimed Mrs. Whalen, and so amusing. Come, girls, we mustn't tire Miss, uh, Mrs., er, with another meaning look at my bare left hand. My husband's name is still Orm, I prompted, quite, quite pleasantly. Oh, certainly, I'm so forgetful. And one reads such queer things in the newspapers nowadays, divorces and separations and soulmates and things. There was a note of gentle insinuation in her voice. Nora stepped firmly into the fray. Yes, doesn't one? What a comfort it must be to you to know that your dear girls were safe at home with you and no doubt will be secure for years to come from the buffeting winds of matrimony. There was a tinge of purple in Mrs. Whalen's face as she moved toward the door, gathering her brood about her. Now that dear Don is almost normal again, I shall send my little girlies over real often. She must find it very dull here after her, uh, life in New York. Not at all, I said hurriedly, not at all. You see, I'm, I'm writing a book. My entire day is occupied. A book, screeched the three. How interesting. What is it? When will it be published? I avoided Nora's baleful eye as I answered their questions and performed the final adieu. As the door closed, Nora and I faced each other, glaring. Hussies, hissed Nora, whereupon it struck us funny and we fell, a shrieking heap, into the nearest chair. Finally, Sis dabbed at her eyes with her handkerchief, drew a long breath, and asked, with elaborate sarcasm, why I hadn't made it a play instead of a book while I was about it. But I mean it, I declared. I've had enough of loafing. Max must unpack my typewriter tonight. I'm homesick for a look at the keys. And tomorrow I'm to be installed in the cubbyhole off the dining room, and I defy anyone to enter it on peril of their lives. If you value the lives of your offspring, warn them away from that door. Von Gerhard said that there was writing in my system, and by the great horn spoon and the beard of the prophet I'll have it out. Besides, I need the money. Nora, dear, how does one set about writing a book? It seems like such a large order. End of chapter 3